Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jenny, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast. And I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning in our summer shorts sermon series. I see many people wore shorts today, so good job. You're like living into this sermon series. That's not what it really means. It means we have actually chosen a bunch of short books in the Bible to study like one shot per Sunday. So this morning is Haggai. And I'm really excited about Haggai, as you'll find out, because it's only two chapters long. So it really fits well into the short series. And it was a little easier to digest. Uh, and Jack, our lead pastor, is away on vacation uh, with his family. They're out camping. So we're thrilled to be able to let them get away while the kids are out of school. And that uh, means I've gotten this wonderful book. And if you're trying to remember where Haggai is in your Bible, this morning I was mentioning that this is our um, book that we're studying, and someone was like, oh, Haggai, I've never heard a sermon on Haggai. So hopefully that's where all of us are at this morning, and this is all new information. But Haggai is towards the end of the Old Testament. It's after Zephaniah. It's before Zechariah. It's got like an HZHZ pattern in the Old Testament. That's how I remembered it when I was in um, Lutheran school. Becoming confirmed is what we do. And I had to memorize all the books of the Bible. And there's Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. So now you know in case you are trying to remember where Haggai is. But this morning we're going to be reviewing where the prophet Haggai fits in Israel's history. And what he has to say specifically to the people of Jerusalem. And how that ancient message he had actually still has much to say to us today in our culture. But before we begin, uh, would you join me in prayer? I just flew in from San Francisco at like midnight last night, and so I could use a little extra prayer this morning as I share with you all. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible opportunity that we have to be your people gathered for worship. God, that can sometimes be something we take for granted. We thank you for the building you've given us to worship in and the people who down the hall raised money and built this place so that we could worship here, God. We give you thanks for that this morning. And God, now as we study your word today, as we study Haggai, would you speak to our hearts through your scriptures? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to start out with a bit of a confession, right, I actually also had that initial thought when I heard I would be preaching on Haggai a few weeks ago. I was like, oh, what, what is Haggai about? I, I mean, I've been to seminary, right, and I have studied, I think I've read the whole Bible a few times over, but I could not have told you what this two-chapter book was about, um, other than I knew it was a prophet, but a prophetic book. And so I would have Wikipedia'd it, and I did, actually, first thing. And it told me a lot, but I, I got a little more in-depth than that, I promise. Um, I've learned a lot, actually, since then. And I'm really excited, as I said, to share this with you this morning. And first, I'm going to give uh, some background information, and then we'll dive into your outline. And the background information actually comes from Scripture as well, mostly. The book of Ezra, which is much earlier in the Old Testament, has a lot to say about this time in Israel's history. Um, and it starts before Haggai and then finishes kind of after Haggai's time. And in Haggai, we learn, or sorry, in Ezra, we learn that there is a new king in Babylon. And he has decreed that the people of Israel um, can go back to Jerusalem. Now, they have been in exile, banished from their city. Their city has been lying in ruins for 70 years. And all of a sudden, this new king 
says, you can go home. You can go back to where you are from. And this is like two generations down the line. And he says, oh, and you can actually take building materials with you to rebuild your temple and to rebuild your city. You can take gold and silver. Ask your neighbors. It's pretty incredible. And so 42,000 Israelites go back to Jerusalem. And they start rebuilding the temple. They start rebuilding their city and their homes. And in Ezra, we learn that they get started on the temple. They start building the foundation. And then all of a sudden, some surrounding nations get kind of nervous that Jerusalem is suddenly returning to power and they're rebuilding. And so they discourage the workers. They make life difficult for them to keep rebuilding. And they stop their work on the temple. And Haggai enters the scene 15 years after that. So they'd started work on it. 15 years go by, nothing's happened. And now Haggai has come to Jerusalem to basically speak to the people about this. It's kind of just sitting there. The temple was sitting there like an empty slab of concrete is what I imagine. And I remember this like totally made me remember visiting New York City in the fall of 2007. So it was six years after the 9-11 attacks. And I was shocked because there was still a giant hole in the ground. Had anyone seen that big hole that was at in New York City for 10 plus years? The new One World Trade Tower, uh, One World Trade Center, yeah, tower wasn't finished until 2012. It was 11 years after the destruction of those towers. And to me, when I was visiting there, I was shocked that we hadn't done anything, that it was still just a big hole in the ground, that we had let sort of this ugliness of that day persist in our nation's most renowned city. And it's even bigger deal in Jerusalem because the temple of Yahweh was once the crowning glory of their city, right? It's the place where God chose to dwell in their midst. It's the place where the community gathered for worship and sacrifices and festivals and where people would make pilgrimages to from far off cities. We all have heard of the temple in Jerusalem. And for 14 years, these people had returned to their city, rebuilt their homes, and it had just been allowed to sit there in ruins. It's a big hole in the ground. And this is where Haggai says, you, you guys are missing, missing something. He reveals that the people of God are too busy with their own kind of welfare and their own things to rebuild God's temple. And because they've neglected to obey God, they're actually not thriving in their city, even though there's all these promises that they would once they return to Jerusalem. And then we're going to look at today that according to Haggai, Obedience to God is impeded by three problems that I think still plague us today in our desire to be obedient to God. And the first one is a scarcity mindset. The second is a lack of perspective or a lack of reflection. And the third is a fear of inadequacy. So we're going to look at those three things, three problems that we face today and that Haggai's people faced as well. So first, the people of God have, they have to have noticed that there's a big pit in the ground, a big hole where the temple should be. Most of them probably walk by it every day. But in verse 2, we find that the people of God have been saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They've basically been saying for 15 years, it's just not a good time right now. 
Maybe next year. Maybe when the weather's better. Maybe when my crops are harvested. Maybe when they're planted. Maybe when we have more time. And then God speaks to the leaders of the people about this and says in verse 3, you say this isn't the right time, but it's a time for you to be enjoying your beautiful, fully refinished houses while the house of God remains in ruin. It's a pretty sharp statement, actually. A direct contrast God's drawing to his house and their houses. And the people of Judah have been working on restoring their homes, rebuilding their lives in this new city for more than a decade. And God's pointing out they're busying themselves with their own welfare and their own needs, and they're neglecting the very reason they were brought back to the city. And so why are they so focused on this? Why, why has it taken them so long to maybe have it dawn on them that maybe they should be focusing on the house of God? Because surely they've had enough time to reestablish themselves. But we find out in verse 6, things aren't going great for them. Verse 6 says, you have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you are never satisfied. You drink, but you never quench your thirst. You put on clothes every day. You're never warm enough. Essentially, they've developed, and this is my word, not the biblical word, but a, a mentality of scarcity. The people of Israel actually came out of a traumatic experience to give a little bit of color to where, why they might be doing this. They've come out of trauma. They were in exile in a foreign city. They watched their own city fall to ruins. They've had to start over from scratch twice in two generations. And now they're having a hard time believing that they'll ever have enough, that, ever, that anything will ever be enough again. They have food, they have wine, they have clothes, but they just don't have enough of it yet. And as soon as they have enough, then they'll start working on the temple. Then they'll as soon as they have enough time, as soon as they have enough money, as soon as they get their feet under him, then they'll build God's house. They'll focus on their relationship with God. But the waiting game isn't working. Fifteen years have passed, and, and they still don't have enough. So first it's as soon as I rebuild my house, and then that's finished. And as soon as I put panels on my house so that it's weatherproof, then I'll go help rebuild the temple. And then it was as soon as I have a good enough year on the farm, and on and on and on. And I think it's important to recognize that it wasn't just one or two people saying this. It was the whole city. It was the culture that this was how they were all sort of operating, collectively feeding this idea that no one had quite enough yet, that there's more to achieve before God could be the first priority. Can anyone relate to this by any means? I found myself relating. Um, I first came across this idea of a scarcity mindset in our culture as I was reading a blog by Brene Brown, who I know Jack quotes a lot, and who Jack introduced me to Brene Brown. She's an author um, and first was kind of on the pod podcast. Um, I'm forgetting the name right now. But anyways, Brene Brown got me to start reading a book by Lynn Twist called The Soul of Money. And she describes scarcity like this. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. And the next one is I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profit. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. 
We, of course, don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough or fit enough or educated or successful enough or rich enough ever. And we're all victims of this mindset at times, I think. And the problem is we'll, we think we'll get there one day a lot of the time. We just have to work harder, plan more, diet more, save more, get a better job, get a better house, right? And then we'll be enough. Then we'll be able to fill in the blank, give, volunteer, be happy, have enough. And it absolutely affects our relationship with God. And I personally have experienced this in many areas. But one area I thought of is I happen to believe that hospitality, that being in someone else's home is a really powerful and beautiful thing. That being, inviting others into your home is a way to create intimacy that almost nothing else quite can achieve. So I really have a high value on it. And I have really hospitable parents who do this so well. They invite people in all the time. They have house guests all the time. They have shown me how to do this really well. And yet, most of you in this room, some of you who are really good friends, have not been to my house. And I have a lot of good excuses and reasons. As soon as I live closer to Northeast Seattle, then I can invite you all here over. Or uh, as soon as we have a bigger house that doesn't feel cramped when there's more than four people in it at a time, then I can invite people over. And as soon as we have a more up-to-date house that doesn't feel dirty no matter how clean I seem to get it, then I can invite people over. This is literally my mentality. I'm actually confessing a fairly serious thing I have going on for me. I will be a super hospitable person. I will be like my parents one day. And we're quite frankly part of a culture that thrives on that mentality the mentality of scarcity, the mentality that you never have quite enough. And it's what super malls and TV commercials and Amazon all sort of depend on. And Haggai says, enough. In all of your striving, you're neglecting the most important thing. You have not honored God. You've been putting God off along with this building project. And so God, in verse 8, says, go up on the mountain, bring down timber, and build my house so that I can take pleasure in it and be honored. And the reality is, I want to address this for a minute, the building project itself is not the core issue. It's not about a building. The temple of the Lord was a very important thing to Israel in a way that maybe we don't quite understand in our culture today. But there were times in Israel's history when God made it clear that he didn't need a house to dwell in. In 2 Samuel 7, David tries, when he's king, to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, I don't need a house built of wood and cedar. David, and, and he says, David, you are not the one to build the temple. But God speaks to the people now about this because he knows that the issue isn't the building. It's their relationship with him, right? They've been so all-consumed with building their own lives and with just surviving that they've missed out on their first calling which is to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind. And Jesus calls us to remember back to this, I think, in Matthew 6. Because there he says that everything else we need will be provided for, and this is a, this is a huge matter of trust for most of us, that everything we need will be provided for if what? If we seek God and his kingdom first. 
that we need worry for nothing, not for food or drink or clothes. It's actually the same list as the one we see in Haggai. We believe as a people, if we are Christians here today, that God has the power over everything in our world, that we have a God of abundance, not of scarcity, that there's nothing scarce in God's economy. And so our first place to go when we have need is not to work harder or to do more, but to actually bend our knees and, and pray and ask God for it and seek God first. And God knows that this is hard for us, actually. And this is why God has sent Haggai to Jerusalem, to encourage them to build the temple so that they'll gather as the community of God again, so that they'll remember who they are, that they are blessed people, and in order to be a blessing for all nations. And so I think God knew, knows that we need physical things. We need communion, bread and wine that are physical to help remind us of who and what Jesus has done for us. And we need buildings to gather in, as inconvenient as that sometimes is. And so God provides a temple for them. It's for the people. God doesn't need a temple. The people needed the temple. So that's number one. Hey, guys. That's Haggai's first move, and his second problem he identifies seems to be that no one in the city has been particularly reflective over how things have been going for them lately. They haven't really understood why they're struggling or thought or sought to think about it. And despite all the promises that they would return to Jerusalem and be blessed beyond measure, they're all struggling as a people. Three times in this book, Haggai uses the phrase, give careful thought to your ways. Or in another version, consider how you have fared so far. It's in verse 5 and 7 of chapter 1, and it's again later in chapter 2. And he's saying, think hard about how things have been going for you so far. No one's noticed how difficult life has been. How the temple has just been sitting vacant year after year. And the excuses have just kept coming. No one's noticed that you're not thriving, that you're barely surviving. And in chapter 2, verse 15, God says to the people, consider how you have fared. Before you started building, when you came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, and yet you didn't return to me. Now, this gets a little complicated because what we're reading right here is that God caused the people to struggle, right? That they weren't just greedy and always wanting more, but they were actually struggling to make ends meet. That they had food, but their crops weren't prosperous. And they had wine, but they never had an abundance of it. And God's saying, yes, I was trying to get your attention. And yet no one stopped to think that something might be wrong. You just worked harder. You kept doing the same thing. We've all heard that definition that insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And we all know that, and yet in practice, that can be a hard lesson to actually let sink in. Right? With every minute of our waking hours, we could potentially be distracted by something, by our smartphones, by our work, by our emails, by our kids, by our social media and our TV. And we struggle to be people who pause, I struggle, to be a person who pauses to reflect on actually how, how are things going in my life. 
who, to be a people who give careful thought to our ways. Be intentional is probably another way to say this. And God's showing his people that pausing to examine your life can be a great way to take a pulse on your relationship with God. You just have to take the time to think about it. Now, this is not to say that if I'm doing really well, my work is going really well, and I'm really prosperous, and I have plenty of money, that God must, me and God must be great. And it's not to say that if you are poor and struggling financially, that you and God must be struggling. It's not that simple. That's not what I'm saying. God is not the great genie in the sky who blesses us when we formula, formula, formulate our lives that, like that, the right way. We have a God who interrupts the laws and the ways of our world at times, who at times causes drought, who at times causes water to burst out of rocks, and who at times allows us to find our own water, right? The way God works is a mystery to us. But we know that there is no magic formula to earn specific kinds of blessings from God. So hear me. When we give financially, there is no guarantee that God will give us more money. And when we sacrifice our time to serve other people, there's no guarantee that we're going to get extra free time later, right? This is not a formula. Yet, God does make us promises. They aren't direct formulas, but God promises that when we trust him enough to obey him, he promises that there will be an abundant life for us to experience. And so trust and obedience with God is the best way to escape a scarcity mindset and to find gratitude for everything we do have. No matter how much or how little it is compared to someone else, it's the best way to find the joy and the fulfillment that we seek. But we need to be a people who stop and think at times, who can check our level of trust and obedience in our God and about where we need God in our lives and part of where we do that is actually here, in this room, in worship, as a community, like we're doing today. I imagine that part of why no one in Jerusalem had really noticed what was going on with them is they were lacking a place for regular gatherings for worship. And particularly, they weren't gathering in a place that called their minds to God. And worship music is actually one of the ways I have found myself become most reflective in gathered worship, on the radio, uh, when I was in my, I may have told the story before, when I was in my mid-20s, I was driving home from work late one night, and a Switchfoot song came on the radio, and it literally, in that moment, sort of changed the course of my life. I ended up quitting my job, I ended up pursuing a ministry year overseas, and because I was able to just, this music that was on the radio made me stop and think. Is this what I want for my life? And it's not always that big. Hopefully, most of the time, it's small sort of direction changes that are a result from us gathering for worship in community and being mindful of our lives and where God's at in our lives. The point is we need each other, I think, to be able to do this reflection well most of the time. And my first thought when I was kind of developing this sermon was that, oh, reflection, that's like solitude going away, thinking for a few days or a few hours. But actually, and I think there's a place for that. That can be a place where this happens. But I actually believe that often we need this group of people we call the church to help us with this, 
to see what Jesus might be calling us to, what obedience looks like, what our next step is. Without the benefit of the community around us, I think most of us will actually have a very difficult time really being self-reflective, really asking the question of Christ, where can I be more obedient? So God knew that his people, I think, needed a place to gather and a place to be reflective together. And so God sends Haggai. But there's one more obstacle to obedience that Haggai identifies, and this totally surprised me as I was reading Haggai, what felt like for the first time, because unlike so many prophets, the people actually listen to Haggai. They start work on the temple only three and a half weeks after he gets there and starts delivering the message from God, which is impressive. Most of the prophet, prophetic books don't go like this, but they start work in the first chapter. And now they've been working hard on this project for like a month, and Haggai brings the people another message from God, which we see at the beginning of chapter 2. And this time, it appears that the people who have started work are pretty discouraged. They're putting up walls, they're starting on a roof, and they're beginning to realize that this temple is not going to look much like the first one. It's not going to be the same. They don't have the manpower or the resources or the skills to restore the temple to its original glory. And in fact, it's going to fall far short of that. And what we can infer from the text, and it gets a little dangerous doing that, but I think we can infer that some people are probably talking about quitting. Why should we even do this? If it's going to be such a shadow of its former self, what, what God would want to live in this temple that we're building? And I was reminded from this part of Haggai that obedience to God isn't just difficult because we get distracted or because we're focused on ourselves. It's difficult because we men and women have some pride, as it turns out. We like to know that if we're going to do something, we'll do it well, that we'll make a difference. And if we can't guarantee that we will, we get discouraged. We want to quit or we want to never start in the first place. And in this case, I love God's response to the people. And I want to read you several verses, kind of another passage here from chapter 2, to give you a sense of what God wants to say to, about this. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 2. Who is left among you, God says, that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? And yet take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus, says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, says God. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give prosperity. It's a beautiful set of promises about the work that these people are doing. And my favorite line, I repeated it, so you probably already know, but is work, for I am with you. Do what you're called to do, because I'm with you. So not only does Haggai remind the people over and over again, I left some of them out because it sounds so repetitive, but he uses 
The Lord Almighty says, the Lord of hosts says over and over and over, over 90 times in these two chapters. He's reminding the people, you have an almighty God. The Lord of angel armies is speaking to you, he's saying. That they're not alone, that the, but that God will do more with the work of their hands than they could imagine. And then when God says, silver and gold belong to me. You keep working with what you have to give. I'll do the rest. It's a beautiful picture of how God uses us when we commit everything we have to him. Jesus taught this to the disciples, I think, many times over. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus sits down by the offering plates in the temple one day. And he watches what happens when people come forward with their offerings. You know, many of us know this story. He watches really wealthy people putting huge amounts of money in, right? And then he watches this widow come forward. And she puts literally her last two coins, the equivalent of pennies, into the offering plate. And Jesus calls his disciples up to him. And he says in Mark 12, verse 43, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And I know, I know this is a familiar story, but how many of us, flipping this a little bit, how many of us really believe that putting a few pennies in the offering plate means much? Right? We often ask this question from the story, how many of us are prepared to put everything we have in, and it's a good question, but it also bears asking how many of us, if everything we had was a few pennies, would believe that that was even worth it to put in the plate in the first place, that if, if it was a true sacrifice for us, that that would be enough. Wouldn't we be tempted to stay and said, oh, it doesn't matter. A few dollars doesn't matter. Why bother? God doesn't need my piddly offering." And of course, the reality is God doesn't need the piddly offerings or the abundant offerings, right? He doesn't need us at all to carry out his will. He doesn't need our money. He says all the silver and all the gold in the world belong to him. And he doesn't need our time or our talents. He could accomplish his purposes better and faster and with less mess if he cut us out of the picture. And yet God invites us to participate in his story, right? It's for us. God desires that we'd work with him, that we'd learn and we'd grow and we'd be transformed as we step further and further into obedience and into his story. And God's only prerequisite is that we would work, enter his work dependent on him and not on our own skills and not on our own effort. That we'd give generously, not that we'd give more money than our neighbor. That we'd serve using the gifts we've been given, no matter how they compare to other people's gifts. And ultimately, God desires that we'd trust him enough to obey him in this. And this is important for us to understand, that God's asking us for obedience, not for his sake, but for ours. Not to earn God's blessing, not to earn God's salvation, not to earn anything. The gift of God, right, is that we have been loved before we did anything. God's desire that we obey him is rooted in that love he already has for us. Much the way a mom desires that her kids obey her, right? Not because she needs to be obeyed, but so that they would have an abundant, full, safe life, right? 
for their life to be beautiful. And so the question for us this morning, I think, is what is God calling us to obey him in? And what's keeping us from that obedience? For me and Matt, and I'm going to share what I, because I've started to think if I'm going to ask you to respond, I should probably also have a response. So this morning, for me, Matt and I have struggled to give financially to all the different organizations and ministries we love because we have these student loans that are like riding on our backs. And I find myself wanting to put every penny into my student loan and saying, then after, as soon as those are paid off, then I will be generous. I'll be able to give to all kinds of places and things. And until then, I'm going to hold tight and give the bare minimum and feeling like we already decided to give when we decided to go to seminary and justifying all kinds of things in my head. And we have been faithfully trying slowly to sort of let some of that need to pay off all of our loans at once go and recognize that God, in God's economy, there is no, um, there's no scarcity. God has enough money for us and God is caring for us. And a pro tip is don't marry someone else who has student loans if you also have student loans. <laughs> but this is our challenge right now. How do we trust God when it's so tempting to say as soon as blank, as soon as our loans are paid off? It's much harder to say if we feel God leading us to give, we'll give and we'll trust God with the financial implications. And particularly for me as an accountant, I wrestle with how to trust God with my money and use my gifts of stewardship and financial management at the same time. I know some of you have that same question. And I confess right now, I know God is calling me to step into greater faith in this. What's that area for you? Where have you found yourself saying, as soon as, then X? Then I'll live into that particular part of my Christian faith. And I'm going to invite you to actually write it down and fill in the blank. There should be pens and pieces of paper distributed around you. And I'm going to invite you not to hang on to that piece of paper, but actually bring it forward and put it at the foot of the cross and say, God, I'm going to surrender this to you, this thing I've been holding on to. You can do that at any time in the next two songs. We'll also have prayer ministers, Joni and Kurt over here, who would love to pray with you whether it's around this or anything that you are experiencing in your life in this moment. Let's pray together now, and I'll invite the musicians back up, who are awesome two pianos, by the way. I'm loving this. Let's pray. God, we recognize that we needed this message from Haggai in most of our lives, that, Lord, we have been putting things ahead of you, in front of you, that our priorities, God, speak to where our real, true loves lie. And so we ask, God, that you would reorder our loves, that we would love you first, that we'd seek you first, and then, God, that everything else would come after. And, God, we ask boldly that you would then provide for us everything we need and that it would be enough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>